0: Hello, my name is Andrew LaPosha, and welcome to the Twilight Years. On today's episode, we will be discussing the death and final years of movie star Betty Davis. Betty Davis began her acting career appearing on Broadway before moving to Hollywood in 1930. After starring in various unsuccessful films, she eventually rose to fame in 1934 for her performance in the movie Of Human Bondage. The following year, she received her first Oscar nomination for the movie Dangerous, taking home the Best Actress Oscar. A few years later, she received another Academy Award and would receive 10 nominations over the course of her whole career. For the next 50 plus years, she would be a major star with over 100 acting credits to her name. Betty Davis was a brilliant actress. Her acting style was intense and forceful and has led to her being one of the most revered leading ladies in cinema history. When it came to acting, Betty Davis had a reputation for being a perfectionist. While this often worked in her favor on screen, it could backfire behind the scenes. Betty's feuds with directors, studio executives, and co-stars were legendary. Betty was also married four times and mostly raised her three children as a single parent. Betty Davis had a notoriously large ego, but she used it to her advantage and became one of the greatest as a result. By the early 1980s, Betty Davis was still moderately successful, but more in TV roles than feature films. She won an Emmy in 1979 for her performance in the TV movie Strangers, The Story of a Mother and Daughter. She was given an American Film Institute Lifetime Achievement Award in 1977. In 1981, she became popular with a younger crowd when the song Betty Davis Eyes was released by Kim Carnes and became the biggest hit of the year. Betty was flattered by the song, writing a letter to Carnes and accepting the gifts of Gold and Platinum Records. In 1983, Betty signed on to do a television series called Hotel. The show would be produced by Aaron Spelling, who at the time was the most prolific television producer. Betty was hesitant to do the show. It would only be seven episodes per season, and would pay $100,000 per episode. It would also only film one day per show. She told her daughter BD that she wanted out. BD told Betty that she would be crazy to not accept that kind of money for only a few days' work. They would get into hostile arguments about it. Eventually, Betty gave in, simply because it would pay well. Betty thought the scripts for the show were awful. She also hated that her part was fairly small. She once told her fans that she would never cameoise herself, and she felt she was breaking that rule. After two episodes were filmed, she flew to the home she had in Westport, Connecticut, to visit her friend Robin Brown. One morning, while taking a shower, Betty noticed a lump on her left breast. She had once claimed cancer would never dare come near me, but after her sister Bobby died of breast cancer in 1979, she would constantly examine herself. Without saying anything to Robin, she flew back to Los Angeles. Betty visited her doctor, Vincent Carroll, who performed a biopsy. A few hours later, Dr. Carroll went to Betty's home and broke the news to her. She had breast cancer and the tumor was malignant. He said that the only way to combat the disease would be to perform a radial mastectomy. For the sake of Betty's privacy, the surgery would be performed at New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center in Manhattan. Betty was very nervous that she wouldn't make it. The surgery was performed on June 9, 1983, and was a success. She said that she was glad to discover the tumor when she did, or else she would be riddled with cancer. It was a huge relief for her. However, any relief quickly went away. After nine days, it was looking like Betty would be discharged. All of a sudden, she suffered a mild stroke. Within the span of a week, she suffered three more strokes, increasing in severity with each one. The last one left her partially paralyzed. Her left hand was knotted, and the right side of her face began drooping. She also developed slurred speech. Betty was scared. She didn't know if she would make it. Her assistant, Kath, held her hand, assuring her everything would be okay. But Betty wasn't so sure. She knew a long recovery was ahead, and she felt like a prisoner. Just a few days after the last stroke, she developed an irritating itch all over her body. The doctors weren't sure what caused it. It could have been an allergic reaction to medicine or symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. Regardless, Betty became a nightmare patient. The staff was growing mad at her, and she would scream and curse at anyone who came near her. The strange thing was her behavior seemed to be helping her health-wise, almost like she was back to her normal self. With much difficulty, Betty was eventually persuaded to leave the hospital and rent a suite at Hotel Lombardi to carry out the remainder of her recuperation. Betty's behavior there hardly changed. The daily physical therapy sessions were painful. Fortunately, her appetite came back, and her legs began to regain their shape. Kath assured her she would make it. Betty hated looking in the mirror. She hated the way she looked. She was very thin, and her mouth twisted. She instructed Kath that no one see her in her condition. Aaron Spelling pleaded with her to return to hotel, offering her more money and accommodations in every way. But she said no. Friends wanted to come visit, but Kath turned them away. They started to hate Kath. Betty didn't even want B.D. to come visit until early September when Betty requested she did before she went back to Los Angeles. When trying to work out a time to visit, B.D. said that her husband would have to drive her from her home in Pennsylvania because she was having back problems. Betty was mad about this. She arranged for a car to pick B.D. up. When B.D. asked that she be picked up at 7.30 a.m., Betty was mad that it was so early. Regardless, B.D. did go see her mother and the visit was uneventful. Despite the mediocrity of the visit, BD felt like she needed to reach out to her mother, and she decided the best way to do that was to write a tell-all biography. If you're like me and you wanted to start a podcast, but were not very tech-savvy, you wouldn't have known what to do. Then I heard about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Betty eventually made it back to Los Angeles, but the recovery continued to be long and difficult. It took her three months to learn to use a knife and fork again. One morning in February 1984, Betty was having difficulty removing her bra. She called out for help, but no one came. In a rage, she attempted to remove it herself and flung it at the TV. She then lost her balance, fell, and broke her hip. Betty was rushed to the hospital, and doctors inserted a pin to help the fracture heal. This put a damper on her recovery. After moving to a beach house in Malibu, she received an offer to star in a TV movie called Murder with Mears, an adaptation of an Agatha Christie novel. She would co star with Helen Hayes, and it would be shot in England. Betty was scared that the public would not react kindly to her appearance. And even though her part was fairly small, she was still worried she wouldn't be able to remember her lines. She was determined to memorize the entire script, and when she finally did, she felt confident about the role. However, when she got to London, she struggled. She also wasn't happy with the final product, mainly because she looked like a shell of her former self. When she appeared on Good Morning America to plug the movie, fans were shocked at her appearance. In November 1984, Betty's lawyer Harold Schiff and her agent Robert Lance got word that BD was writing a tell-all about her mother, to be titled My Mother's Keeper. When the two men broke the news to Betty, she was furious. Schiff and Lance said they would try their best to prevent the publication and release of the book but they couldn't reach an agreement because the book was already midway through publication. Betty and B.D. eventually got to talk about the book, and a shouting match ensued. Betty accused her of doing it for the money, but B.D. said it was because she loved her mother. Betty angrily hung up the phone. With the confrontation behind her, B.D. finished the book and planned a publication tour, which was to begin on Mother's Day, 1985. Several years earlier, the daughter of Joan Crawford, Betty's late co-star and rival, had written a scathing tell-all about her mother, and people thought My Mother's Keeper was going down the same route. The book about Crawford, titled Mommy Dearest, detailed her as physically abusive. While My Mother's Keeper didn't portray Betty that way, it was hardly less flattering. BD portrayed Betty as an emotionally abusive drunk who made embarrassing scenes in public. The accuracy of the book was debated. Some did think that the general portrait of Betty was accurate, but some events detailed in the book were skewed. Many of Betty's friends and family trashed the book, calling it inaccurate. They agreed that BD did it for the money. Another possible motive was BD's recent religious conversion, and she wanted to paint Betty as a sinner. Despite the backlash, the book became a bestseller. It took Betty months to actually read the book. She had mostly heard about the stories in it through friends. She was deeply offended by My Mother's Keeper. Letters of support came from stars like Burt Reynolds, Meryl Streep, and Sally Field, but it was no use. Many agree that the book was the beginning of the end for Betty. Betty continued to suffer in 1985 when her assistant, Kath, decided to move to France to be an assistant to clothes designer Patrick Kelly. Betty was very upset. Fortunately, she found work. She signed on to star in another TV movie, As Summer's Die, and was able to hire a new assistant. But that was the only word she was able to get. Roles dried up. She called Robert Lance every couple of days and asked why she wasn't getting any scripts. Lance said because roles Betty could play weren't in demand, but the truth was Betty wasn't employable because of the state she was in. For a year, Betty did not have any acting roles. She took this time to start on a second autobiography that would serve as a response to My Mother's Keeper. In the summer of 1986, producer Mike Kaplan offered Betty a role in the movie The Whales of August, which was a movie about two elderly widowed sisters. She would co-star with silent film superstar Lillian Gish, who had done very little work since talkies began. It would be Betty's first film role in six years and would be shot in Maine. Almost from the beginning, Betty hated working with Gish. Gish was 93 years old and Betty would make disparaging remarks about her age and grumbled about having to share the limelight with her. Shortly before filming began, Betty underwent a minor corrective surgery on her hip. The weather in Maine was very cold, and it sometimes was a pain for Betty to walk. She would also continue to be trouble on the set and briefly quit the movie on the first day. The Whales of August was released in October 1987. Because it was considered more of an art film, it did not have a wide distribution. Reviews were decent. Gish's performance was acclaimed, and Betty's performance got good reviews too, but that wasn't enough for her. She was very jealous of Gish. Betty refused to attend the movie's premiere at the Cannes Film Festival with Gish and director Lindsay Anderson. When The Whales of August was released, it garnered moderate box office results. There was talk that both Betty and Gish could get Oscar nominations for Best Actress, but instead only their co-star Ann Southern received a nomination for Best Supporting Actress, which greatly disappointed Betty. When the nominations were announced, Betty called Ann at her home in Idaho. However, instead of congratulating her, Betty offered to accept the award on her behalf if she was unable to make it to the ceremony in Los Angeles. The Whales of August did not help her get any new roles, and she fired Robert Lance. Lance was devastated. He wasn't just Betty's agent, but they were good friends, too. Betty was also getting more frail and reportedly weighed less than 100 pounds. However, Kath came back into her employ, and she was about to do a book tour for her new autobiography, This and That. However, that book did not get good reviews. Fans who were expecting a harsh response to My Mother's Keeper did not get that. Instead, Betty actually spoke kindly of BD. Even though the book didn't get good reviews, it did manage to reach number five on the New York Times bestseller list, but Betty was upset that it didn't reach number one. In 1988, director Larry Cohen had a movie in mind for Betty. It would be a black comedy with supernatural overtones called The Wicked Stepmother. Cohen had initially submitted the script to Robert Lance, who rejected it without showing it to Betty. After Lance was fired, Cohen tried again showing it to her new agent, Michael Black. Weeks later, Betty called Cohen, saying she enjoyed the script and wanted to talk to him. When Cohen met with Betty, he was shocked by how frail she looked. Betty agreed to do the movie for $250,000 and wanted Kath to be the producer for the movie. MGM agreed to do the movie, but had doubts that Betty would bring them the desired box office results. Even though Cohen enjoyed Betty, other crew members didn't feel the same way. The cinematographer was ready to quit on the first day. Betty's frailties didn't help either. Cohen offered to have a bed installed in her dressing trailer, but she refused, saying she has never laid down between takes. At one point, Betty fell walking to her trailer. People started to go to help her up, but Cohen stopped them, knowing Betty wouldn't want their help. She refused help from anyone and reportedly laid there for 20 minutes. Eventually, crew members placed wooden crates next to her and Betty used them to help herself up. Cohen told her to take the rest of the day off, but Betty said she could continue to work. She worked later that day and did fine. After a week of filming, Betty decided she hated working on The Wicked Stepmother. She thought she looked terrible when the dailies were shown and quit the movie. Betty had worked hard on her appearance and felt that it still wasn't good enough. Harold Schiff and Michael Black called Larry Cohen and blamed him for Betty's leaving. They said he wasn't sympathetic enough when Betty fell, and that the lighting on the movie caused her to be disoriented. At first, there was talk that maybe she'd return after some dental work was completed, and Cohen shot scenes that could be done without her. But eventually, it became obvious she wasn't coming back. With Betty gone, Larry Cohen did his best to change the script so that he could cobble the 15 minutes of footage he shot with Betty into a working movie. The solution was for Betty's character to change into a beautiful young woman. With this change, the movie got very far away from Larry's initial vision, and the movie suffered from it. The movie was released directly to video. Betty was appalled that they used the footage she had shot. She went on Entertainment Tonight and publicly blasted Cohen and the movie. It was very obvious that Betty would never make another movie. During this time, Betty became a frequent talk show guest, appearing with Johnny Carson, Larry King, Joan Rivers, and David Letterman. With her skewering of the studio system, Joan Crawford, and Faye Dunaway, she became a fan favorite. Despite her frailties, she remained very sharp. It was becoming increasingly hard for Betty to move around. She grew fearful that if she didn't keep busy, she would die. So she accepted any invitations for interviews and public appearances she was offered. She also accepted several Lifetime Achievement Awards traveling tens of thousands of miles throughout 1988 and into 1989. These included a Kennedy Center Honor and the Legion of Honor from France. In April 1989, despite feeling weak, she flew to New York to accept the Film Society Award at the Lincoln Center. New York Times film critic Vincent Camby wrote about how frail she was. Sometimes Betty would nod off in the middle of a sentence. Kath was very worried and told her to see a doctor. That summer, she received bad news. Her cancer had returned. She began secret radiation treatments at Cedar sinai Medical Center, which was just a few miles from her home. Reports of the cancer's return never made the news, but tabloids noted her skeletal appearance and suggested that she was starving herself to death. On television, Betty's deterioration was very obvious, and BD attempted to reach out to her before it was too late, but she was never able to. Betty was in constant pain and feeling nauseous because of the radiation. She was given an invitation to be honored at an annual film festival in San Sebastian, Spain. Betty accepted the offer. Her doctors advised her not to go, but they didn't say no. Betty and Kath flew to New York and stayed the night there before flying to Paris on September 14th. Betty was given painkillers and slept through most of the eight-hour flight. When they arrived in Spain, she rested for three days before going out to meet the public. Betty made an appearance at a press conference and was told not to say she was terminally ill. However, she did say, Time is getting short, and I'm glad they invited me when I did. Otherwise, I might never have been around to come. There was steady rain on September 22nd, the day of the festival, which concerned Betty. Kath was also worried that she wouldn't be able to go. On the way to the festival, Betty fell asleep in the limousine. When she eventually woke up and looked out the window and saw the lines of fans, Betty asked the chauffeur to stop so she could meet and shake hands with onlookers. When Betty accepted her award at the festival, Kath noted that she seemed more full of life than she had in a while. However, as she was helped down from the stage, she collapsed and was unable to attend the reception afterwards. Over the next week, she attended a few functions, but she seemed out of it, suffering from flu-like symptoms. A doctor came to Betty's hotel but didn't know how to help her. Kath called Harold Schiff and alerted him of the situation. He advised her to fly Betty to the American hospital in Paris, where some of the world's greatest cancer specialists practiced. On October 3rd, an ambulance plane arrived to take Betty to Paris, but she insisted that she look good, dressing nice and putting on makeup. Betty refused a stretcher and was talkative and alert during the flight. At the hospital, tests showed that the radiation therapy wasn't working and that her cancer had spread. The doctor also said that it would not be safe for Betty to return to America. All he could do was give her morphine shots to numb the pain. Even though she had a lot of morphine in her system, Betty remained alert. Her son Michael called and said he wanted to come see her, but Betty told him not to, insisting she'd be fine and would make it back to the United States. On October 6, 1989, Betty was weaker than ever. She told her doctor she wanted to be alone with Kath. When a doctor came by, Betty apologized for having been a burden. As the night began, dark clouds formed in the sky, which made Betty smile, because rain always seemed to bring good luck to her. Around 11 p.m., Betty Davis died at the age of 81. Betty's death was huge news. Some felt that she might have been fine had she not traveled to Spain, but some felt it was good that she did. Kath made arrangements for Betty's body to be flown back to Los Angeles. She arrived at Los Angeles International Airport in a very elegant coffin. Her funeral, which was held in the chapel at Forest Lawn, Hollywood Hills, was private and brief. B.D. and her family were noticeably absent. A few days after her death, B.D. gave an interview with Connie Chung, saying, I won't shed a single tear. Her death was only a technicality. She died for me years ago. Betty was interred in the Davis family mausoleum at Forest Lawn alongside her sister and mother. Her epitaph reads, she did it the hard way. It's very fitting. She never had it easy, and her hard work paid off. That's why she's a legend and one of the greatest of all time. Thank you all for listening to The Twilight Years. Please don't forget to subscribe and, if possible, leave me a review. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter. The links are included in the description of this episode. Do you have anyone you would like to see talked about on this podcast? Let me know and I'll do my best to get to them. Thank you again for listening. My name is Andrew Laposha, and I will see you next time.